0: chapter 27 of dearbrook this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org dearbrook by harriet martineau chapter 27 a morning in march margaret was as calm as she appeared to be to a nature like hers blissful repose was congenial and anxiety both appeared and felt unnatural In her there was no weak wonder that providence had blessed her as she felt she was blessed. While she suffered, she concluded with certainty that the suffering was for some good purpose, but no degree of happiness took her by surprise, or seemed other than a natural influence shed by the great parent into the souls of his children. She had of late been fairly shaken, not in her faith, but in her serenity, In a moment this experience appeared like a sick dream, and her present certainty of being beloved spread its calm over her lately troubled spirit, somewhat as her nightly devotions had done from her childhood upwards. Even now, it was little that she thought of herself. Her recovered Philip filled her mind. He who had been a stranger, who had been living in a world of which she could conceive nothing, who had suddenly vanished from her companionship, as if an earthquake had swallowed him up, and who was now all her own again, by her side, and to be lived for. Amidst this security, this natural and delightful state of things, that restless uneasiness, now jealousy, and now self-abasement, which she had called her own vanity and selfishness, disappeared, and she felt like one who has escaped from the horrors of a feverish bed into the cool, fragrant airs and the mild sunshine of the early morning. Anxieties soon arose, gentle doubts, expressing themselves in soft sighs, which were so endeared by the love from which they sprang that she would not have banished them if she could. Anxieties lest she should be insufficient for Philip's happiness, lest he should overrate the peace of home which she now knew was not to be looked for in full measure there. Any more than in other scenes of human probation, gentle questionings like these there were, but they tended rather to preserve than to disturb her calmness of spirit. Misery had broken her sleep by night, and constrained her conduct by day. Happy love restored her at once to her natural mood, lulling her to the deepest rest when she rested and rendering her free and self-possessed in all the employments and intercourses of life. There was one person who must not be kept waiting for this intelligence till Mrs. Rowland's return, as Margaret told Philip, and that was Maria. Philip's heart was now overflowing with kindness towards all whom Margaret loved, and he spoke with strong interest of Maria, of her virtues, her misfortunes, and the grace and promise which one bloomed in her. You knew her before her misfortunes, then? To be sure, I did. That was the time when I did know her. For, as you may perceive, there is not much opportunity now. And besides, she is totally changed that I do not feel sure that I understand her feelings. I am too much in awe of them to approach her very nearly. Oh yes, I knew Maria Young once much better than I know her now. She never told me so, how very strange. Does she ever speak of any other circumstance of her prosperous days that is true only incidentally time was said philip when some boyish dreams connected themselves with maria young only transiently and quite at the bottom of my own fancy i never spoke of them to anyone before nor fully acknowledged them to myself she was the first sensible woman i ever knew the first who conveyed to me any conception of what the moral nature of a woman may be under favorable circumstances for this i am under great obligations to her and this is all the feeling that i brought out of our intercourse it might possibly have come to more but that i disliked her father excessively and left off going there on that account what a selfish wretch i was in those days i can hardly believe it now but i distinctly remember rejoicing on hearing of her accident that my esteem for her had not passed into a warmer feeling as i should then have suffered so much on her account is it possible cried margaret who in the midst of the unpleasant feeling excited by this fact did not fail to remark to herself that there could have been no love in such a case i ought for my own sake however margaret to say that maria young had not the slightest knowledge of her influence over me, superficial and transient as it was. I never conveyed it to her by word or act, and I am thankful I did not, for this reason among many, that I am now perfectly free to show her all the kindness she deserves, both from her own merits and from her being a beloved friend of yours. Margaret had no doubt of Philip's full conviction of what he was saying, but he was far from certain that he was not mistaken, that looks and tones might not have communicated what words and acts had been forbidden to convey. She thought of Maria's silence about her former acquaintance with Philip, of her surprising knowledge of his thoughts and ways, betraying itself to a vigilant observer through the most trivial conversation and of her confession that there had been an attachment to someone in thinking of these things, her heart melted within her to her friend. She silently resolved upon the only method she could think of to spare her feelings. She would write the news of this engagement instead of going to tell it, as she had intended. She was confident that it would be no surprise to Maria, but Maria should have time and solitude in which to reconcile herself to it. What was to be done about Mrs. Underby? She had been told at once on Philip's arrival that it was all a mistake about Miss Bruce, and she had appeared relieved when freed from the image of an unknown daughter-in-law. Philip and Margaret agreed that they must deny themselves the pleasure of revealing the rest of the truth to her, till it had been inflicted upon Mrs. Rowland. Mrs. Enderby would never be able to keep it from the greys, and she would be disturbed and alarmed in the expectations of the scene, which might ensue. When Mrs. Rowland should discover that her brother meant to choose his wife for himself, instead of taking one of her selection, Margaret must go and see his mother as often as possible, but her new interest in her old friend must be concealed for the present. How Margaret, motherless for so many years, felt her heart yearn towards the old lady who seemed to be everybody's charge, but whom she felt now to be a scared object of her care. The lovers immediately experienced some of the evils attendant on concealment in the difficulty of meeting as freely as they wished. There was the breakfast room at Mr. Hope's for them, and by a little management on the part of brother and sister, a branching often country walks out of sight of the good people of Deerbrook. In company, too, they were always together and without awkwardness. True lovers do not want to talk together in company. They had rather not, it is enough to be in natural presence, and they have nothing to say at such times, and prefer joining in what everybody else is saying. When Philip had once put a stop to all congratulations about Miss Bruce by earnestly and most respectfully, though gaily, releasing that lady's name from all connection with his own, no further awkwardness remained. He treated the affair as one of the false reports, which are circulating every day and left it for his sister to explain how she had been misled by it. It was amusing to the Corner House family to see that Mrs. Gray and Sophia insisted on believing that either Mr. Enderby was a rejected lover of Miss Bruce's, or that it had been an engagement which was now broken off, or that it would soon be an engagement. The gay state of Enderby's spirits accorded best with the latter supposition that this gaiety might be assumed to cover his mortification, Margaret was daily made a listener to one or other of these suppositions. One bright, mild March day, Hester and Margaret were accompanying Philip to Mr. Rolland's to call on Mrs. Enderby. When they met Mr. Rolland in the street, returned the evening before from Sheltonham. Ladies, you're most obedient, said he, stopping up the path before them. I was on my way to call on you but if you will step in to see Mrs. Enderby, we can have our chat there. And he at once offered his arm to Margaret, bestowing a meaning smile on Hester, as soon as they were fairly on their way. He entered at once, on the compliments it had been his errand to pay, but spoke for himself alone. I did not write, said he, because I expected to deliver my good wishes in person so soon but they are not the less hearty for being a little delayed. I find, however, that I am still beforehand with my neighbors, that even Mrs. Enderby does not know, nor my partner's family, all in good time, but I am sorry for this mistake about the lady. It is rather awkward. I do not know where Mrs. Rowland got her information, or what induced her to rely so implicitly upon it. All I can say is that I duly warned her to be sure of her news before she regularly announced it, but I believe such reports, oftener unfounded than true, have been the annoyance of young people ever since there has been marriage and giving in marriage. We have all suffered in our turn, I dare say, though the case is not always so broad and one as this. Come, Mr. Philip, what are you about, standing there and keeping the ladies standing, "'and I do believe you have not knocked. "'Our doors do not open of themselves, "'though it be to let in the most welcome guests in the world. "'Now, ladies, will you walk in? "'Philip will prepare Mrs. Enderby to expect you upstairs, "'and meanwhile let me show you "'what a splendid john we have in blow here. "'Today was so mild, "'and the sun shone into the house so pleasantly "'that Mrs. Enderby had been permitted to leave her chamber.' and establish herself for the day in the drawing-room. There she was found in a flutter of pleasure at the change of scene. Matilda's cannery sang in the sunshine. Philip had filled the window with flowering plants for his mother, and the whole room was fragrant with his hyacinths. The little greys had sent Mrs. Enderby a bunch of violets. Phoebe had made bold while the gardener was at breakfast to abstract a bow from the almond tree on the grass, and its pink blossoms now decked the mantelpiece. These things were almost too much for the old lady. Her black eyes looked rather too bright, and her pale, thin face twitched when she spoke. She talked a great deal about the goodness of everybody to her, and said it was almost worth while being ever so ill to find oneself so kindly regarded. It rejoiced her to see her friends around her again in this way. It was quite a meeting of friends again. If only her dear Priscilla and the sweet children had been here. It was a great drawback, certainly, their being away. But she hoped they would soon be back. If they had been here, there would have been nothing left to wish. Hester asked if Mr. Hope had visited her this morning. She had rather expected to meet him here, and had brought something for him, which he had wished very much to have. A letter from his brother in India. She was impatient till it was in his hands. Had he made his call, or might she expect him presently? Mrs. Enderby seemed to find difficulty in comprehending the question, and then she could not recollect whether Mr. Hope had paid his visit this morning or not. She grew nervous at her own confusion of mind, talked faster than ever, and at last, when the cannery sang out a sudden loud strain, she burst into tears. "'We are too much for her,' said Hester." let us go we have been very wrong yes go said philip and send phoebe you will find your way into the garden and i will join you there presently roland you will go with them margaret cast a beseeching look at philip and he gratefully permitted her to stay hester carried off the cannery margaret drew down the blinds and then kneeled by mrs Enderby, soothing and speaking cheerfully to her while tears called up by a strange mixture of emotions were raining down her cheeks philip stood by the mantelpiece weeping without restraint the first time that margaret had ever seen tears from him i am a silly old woman said mrs Enderby, half laughing in the midst of her sobs here comes phoebe phoebe i have been very silly and i hardly know what about i declare my dear she exclaimed as she felt tears "'dropped upon the hand which Margaret was chafing. "'My dear Miss Ibbotson. "'Oh, call me Margaret. "'But, my dear, I'm afraid there is something the matter. "'After all, something has happened.' "'Oh, dear, no, ma'am,' said Phoebe. "'Only we don't like to see you in this way.' "'There is nothing the matter, I assure you,' said Margaret. "'We were too much for you. "'We tired you, and we are very sorry, that is all.' But the room will be kept quite quiet now and you will soon feel better i am better my dear thank you how are you sitting so low bless me you are kneeling pray my dear rise to think of your kneeling to take care of me give me one kiss and i will rise said margaret bending over her it was a hearty kiss which mrs Enderby gave her for the old lady to put all her energy into it margaret rose satisfied She felt as if she had been accepted for a daughter. As soon as Mrs. Enderby appeared disposed to shut her eyes and lie quiet, Philip and Margaret withdrew, leaving her to Phoebe's care. Arm in arm, they sauntered about the walks, till they came upon Hester and Mr. Rowland, who were sitting in the sun, under the shelter of an evergreen hedge. Have you heard nothing of my husband yet? asked Hester. I do wish he would come and read this letter from Frank. Her anxiety is purely disinterested, said Margaret to Philip. There can be nothing about her in that letter. His greetings to her will come in the next. Edward enjoys Frank's letters above everything, observed Hester. Suppose you go in next door, and we will send hope to you when he comes, said Philip, intending thus to set Mr. Rowland free to dismiss Hester and have Margaret to himself for a garden walk. The greys are all out for the day, observed Mr. Rowland, my partner and all, and this must be my excuse to you, ladies, for wishing you a good morning. There is a lighter at the wharf down there, whose landing waits for me. Aye, go, said Philip. We have detained you long enough. We will find our way, by some means, into the greys' grounds, and amuse ourselves there. If you will bid one of your people, call us when hope comes, we shall hear. By the help of an overturned wheelbarrow and some activity, and at the expense of a very little detriment to the hedge, the ladies were presently landed on Mr. Grey's territories by common consent. The three directed their steps toward the end of the green walk, hence might be seen the prospect of which the sisters were never tired. A purple and golden crocus peeped up here and there from the turf of this walk. There was a wilderness of daffodils on either side, the blossoms just bursting from their green sheaths. The periwinkle, with its starry flowers and dark shining sprays, overran the borders, and the hedge which bounded on the walk was red with swollen buds. As the gazers leaned on this close-clipped, compact hedge, They overlooked a wide extent of country. They stood on a sort of terrace, and below them was the field where the gray's pet animals were wont to range. The old pony trotted towards the terrace, as if expecting notice. Fanny's and Mary's lambs approached and looked up, as awaiting something good. Philip amused himself, and them with odd noises, but had nothing better for them, and so they soon scampered off the pony throwing out his hind legs as if in indignation at his bad entertainment beyond this field a few white cottages in the rear of the village peeped out from the lanes and seemed to sit down to rest in the meadows so profound was the repose which they seemed to express the river wound quietly through the green level filling its channel and looking pearly under the light spring sky and behind it the woods uprose their softened masses and outlines prophesying of leafy summer shades. Near at hand, the air was alive, with twitterings afar off. Nature seemed asleep, and nothing was seen to move but the broad sail of a wherry and a diminished figure of a man beside his horse, bush harrowing in a distant green field. Hester judged rightly that the lovers would like to have this scene to themselves and having surveyed it with that sigh of delight with which spring causes the heart to swell, she softly stole away and sauntered down the green walk. She proceeded till she reached the bench, whence she could gaze upon the gray old church tower, rising between the intervening trees, and at the same time overlook Mr. Rollins' garden. She had not sat many minutes before her husband leaped the hedge and bounded over the grass towards her, what news cried he there is good news in your face there is good news in my bag i trust as she produced the large square epistle marked ship letter in those red characters which have a peculiar power of making the heart beat she did not wonder that her husband changed color as she held up the letter she knew that the arrival of news from frank was a great event in life to edward she glorified in being for the first time the medium through which this rare pleasure reached him, and she longed to share for the first time the confidence of a brother. Margaret had for some months reposed upon the possession of a brother. She was now to have the same privilege. She made room upon the bench for her husband, and proposed to lose no time in reading the letter together. But Hope did not sit down, though, from his agitation. She would have supposed him glad of a seat, He said he would read in the shrubbery, and walked slowly away, breaking the seal as he went. Hester was rather disconcerted, but she suppressed her disappointment, begged him to take advantage of the bench, and herself retired into the orchard while he read his epistle. There as she stood apparently amusing herself by the pond, wiping away a tear or two which would have way, she little imagined what agony her husband was enduring from this letter, which she was supposing must make his heart overflow with pleasure. The letter was half full of reply to Edward's account of Margaret in his epistle of last June, of raillery about her, of entreaty that Edward would give him such a sister-in-law, and of imitations that nothing could be more apparent than that, the whole rich treasure of his heart's love was margaret's own hope's soul sickened as he rode with that deadly sickness which he had believed was past but last june with his delights in opening love was too suddenly and too vividly reawakened in his memory and imagination the margaret of yesterday of last month he trusted he had arrived at regarding as a sister not so the margaret of last summer In vain he repeated, again and again to himself, that he had expected this, that he always knew it must come, that this was the very thing, and no more, that he had been dreading for half a year past, that it was over now, that he ought to rejoice, that he held in his hand. The last witness and reminder of the mistake of his life in vain did he repeat to himself these reasonable things, these satisfactory truths. They did not still the throbbing of his brain, or relieve the agony of his spirit, an agony under which he could almost have cursed the hilarity of his brother as levity, and his hearty affection as cruel mockery. He recovered some breath and composure when he read the letter half of Frank's volume of communication, and before he had finished it, the sound of distant footsteps fell upon his excited ear. He knew they were coming, the three who would be full of expectation as to what he should have to tell them from India. It was they, walking very slowly as if waiting for the news. Come, said he, starting up and going to meet them. Now to the green walk. We shall be quiet there, and I will read you all about Frank. He did read them all about Frank. All the last half of the letter, Hester hanging on his arm, and Philip and Margaret listening as if they were taking in the share of family news when it was done, and someone said it was time to be turning homewards. Hope disengaged his arm from Hester, and ran off saying that he would report of Mrs. Enderby to Mr. Rowland in the office, and meet them before they should be out of the shrubbery. He did so, but he first took his way round by a fence, which was undergoing the operation of tarring, thrust Frank's letter into the fire, over which the tar was heating, and saw every inch of it consumed before he proceeded. When he regained his party, Hester took his arm and turned once more towards the shrubbery, saying, We have plenty of time, and I am not at all tired, so now read me the rest. My love, I have read you all I can. Hester stopped short, and with flashing eyes, whose fire was scarcely dimmed by her tears, cried, do you mean to give me no more of your confidence than others is your wife my dear it is not my confidence it is frank's and is not frank my brother he is nothing to them he was not your brother when this letter was written nor did he know that he should ever be so consider this letter as one of old time as belonging to the antiquity of our separate lives i hope there will never be another letter from frank or anybody else, out of the range of my professional affairs, whose contents will not be as much yours as mine. This must satisfy you now, Hester, for I can tell you no more. This ought to satisfy you. It does not satisfy me. I never will be satisfied with giving all and having nothing in return. I have given you all, not a thought has there been in my heart about Margaret, from the day we married, that I have not imparted to you. Has it not been so? I believe it, and I thank you for it. And what is it to you to have a sister? You who have always had sisters, what is it to you, in comparison with my longing to have a brother? And now you make him no more mine than he is, Margaret's, and Philip's. He himself, if he has the heart of a brother, would cry out upon you for disappointing me, I can allow you for your feelings, Hester. I have known too well what disappointment is. Not to feel for you, but here the fault is not mine. Whose is it, then? It is to be charged upon providence, I suppose. Like most of our evils. No, Hester, I charge it upon you. The disappointment was unavoidable. But the sting of it lies in yourself. You are unreasonable, It is at your own request that I remind you to be reasonable. And when was that request made? When I believed that you would hold me your friend, that no others were to come near my place in your confidence, that all you cared for was to be equally mine, that your brother himself was to be my brother. It was when you promised me these things that I put my conscience and my feelings into your charge. But now all that is over. You are as much alone in your own soul as ever, as I am thrust out from it, as if you were like other men. Oh, she cried, covering her face with her hands, call me your housekeeper at once, for I am not your wife, and breathe not upon my conscience. Look not into my heart, for what are they to you? I reclaim from you, as your servant, the power I gave you over my soul, when I supposed I was to be your wife now you must hear me hester sit down for you cannot stand under the tempest of your own feelings now what are the facts out of which all this have arisen i have had a letter written before we were known to be engaged containing something which is confided to my honor we had both rather that such had not been the case would you now have me violate my honor let us have done the supposition is too ridiculous but the manner, pleaded Hester, it is not curiosity about the letter. I care nothing of it contained the affairs of twenty nations. But, oh, your manner was cruel. If you love me as you once did, you cannot treat me exactly as you treat Margaret and Philip. You do not love me as you once did. You do not answer me, she continued in a tone of wretchedness. Nay, do not answer me now. It will not satisfy me to hear you say upon compulsion that you love me. Ah, I had Margaret once, and once I had you. Philip has taken my Margaret from me, and if you despise me, I will lie down and die. Fear not, said Hope, with great solemnity. While I live, you shall be honored, and have such rest as you will allow to your own heart. But do not see that you have now been disturbing me, not I you, Shall I begin to question whether you love me? Could you complain of injustice if I did, when you have been tempting my honor, insulting my trust in you, and wounding my soul? Is this the love you imagine I cannot estimate in return? This is madness, Hester. Rouse yourself from it. Waken up the most generous part of yourself. We shall both have the need of it all. Oh God, what do you intend? Consider again before you break my heart. If you mean to say that we must, Edward, forgive me, Edward. I mean to say that we must support each other under troubles of God sending, instead of creating woes of our own. Support each other. Thank heaven. I see how your spirit rouses itself at the first sound of threatening from without. I knew it would. Rough and trying times are coming, love, and I must have your support trouble is coming daily and hourly annoyance and no end of it that i can see and poverty perhaps instead of the ease to which we looked forward when you married me i do not ask you whether you can bear these things for i know you can i shall look to you to help me to keep my temper are you not mocking me doubtfully whispered hester no my love her husband replied looking calmly in her face I know you to be a friend made for adversity. Let it come then, exclaimed she, and she felt herself on the threshold of a new life, in which all the past might yet be redeemed. They soon rejoined Margaret and went home to relate and to hear what new threats the day had disclosed. End of chapter 27